Come thou fount of every blessing Tune my heart to sing thy praise Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of loudest praise Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. I'm your host, Bill Real. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook at LDS Leadership Principles. You can also find this podcast at Mormon Discussion uh, on iTunes, under the name Mormon Discussion, sorry. And you can also find it at its host site, which is mormondiscussion.podbean.com. We've got a great uh, episode for you today. We're going to do a two-part interview with a gentleman by the name of Brian Whitney. Some of you may know him. He is a moderator at the New Order Mormon website, a forum designed to help uh, Latter-day Saints who are struggling to be able to find a middle way within the church to be able to still uh, be a part of it and participate. He also is uh, currently working within the church history department. And so without further ado, part one of my interview with Brian Whitney. Welcome to Mormon Discussion. Uh, great to have you with us, Brian. Wonder if you might uh, introduce yourself to us. Yeah, thanks for having me, um, Bill. So yeah, I'm Brian Whitney. I'm currently living in uh, Clearfield, Utah. I'm originally a native of the Seattle area, and uh, I guess we can uh, launch from there. Excellent, excellent. Well, why don't you start off by telling my listeners uh, a little bit about uh, your growing up and how you encountered the church. I would love to. So I'm, uh, as I mentioned, I'm a resident most of the Seattle area, and my family um, goes back there. I actually don't have a lot of roots in uh, in the Mormon Church. In fact, uh, just a um, couple of quick stories. My family goes back to pretty much the founding of of Seattle. Um, I have a, a grandfather, a great great grandfather, who was a, um, a Mennonite from Pennsylvania that came over. Uh, in the early 1900s, hired on a crew to clear the trees that Seattle is now uh, sitting on. And on the other side, I have a great-great-grandfather who was a Presbyterian minister um, from Texas who uprooted and moved up to Bellingham, Washington, which was uh, it's the most northern town in, uh, in Washington State. Uh, it was a uh, port of departure during the Yukon Gold Rush, and so he set up a Presbyterian church um, up up there, and uh, my family has been residents of Washington State ever since. Um, strong Presbyterian background, uh, as you can imagine, with my family. Um, the uh, the other fun story that I like to tell about my great grandfather, who was on the clearing crew for Seattle, is uh, it's actually where the term Skid Row uh, originated. Uh, all the trees that they would um, cut down, they would slide down the hill into the Puget Sound, and uh, that uh, area became known as Skid Row because they would skid the trees down. Gotcha. And they would have these uh, little shanty shacks on the side of the Skid Row for those who couldn't afford better housing, uh, those who were on cheap labor. And uh, I don't know if my great-great-grandfather lived in one of those little uh, sheds or not, but that's where the idea and the image in American lexicon came from of living on Skid Row. Um, so I can I can literally say that my family comes from Skid Row. Gotcha. Hey, a question before you go on to how you kind of 
maybe encountered the church. You talked about being raised in uh, Presbyterianism. How did that help your kind of religious beliefs start off, or how how were you shaped by those? My grandfather was was a pretty devout um, Presbyterian, and well, my mother and father split when I was about two. Uh, my mother moved back in with her parents, and obviously with me, and uh, my grandfather would take us to church every Sunday uh, down the street at the local Presbyterian chapel. Um, it definitely, you know, it, it introduced religion in my life, introduced Christianity, obviously, in my life, and that was really the model that I had um, as far as what church should be. You've got a, um, you know, you have a minister, uh, in this case, a minister with a long uh dark robe on and uh and you had uh, a choir singing and you had potlucks and children's activities and uh that's you know that that was church gotcha. in my gotcha excellent um you said you were raised by your mom kind of in a as a single a single mom um how did that shape your life as well well, I, I had to pick up a lot more weight as a child. Um, I didn't have that father to go to, although my grandfather really served that purpose well uh, in my life. He was he was really the the one who would you know get me a bicycle and encourage me to get on paper route and join the Boy Scouts. And he put me to work actually when I was about twelve. He had me mowing lawns and scrubbing barnacles off boats and carrying bricks and chopping wood and anything that I could do to earn a few extra bucks. So you developed a strong work ethic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've I've been working nonstop since I was probably about twelve, but you know we didn't have much money. Um, my mother and I we did we moved out of her folks' house when I was about six and got ourselves an apartment in a low income uh, apartment housing in Everett, Washington, uh, which is where the main Boeing plant facilities are. And uh, it was you know it was a poor neighborhood, and it was uh, I I felt like a minority. It was uh, predominantly an Asian. Uh, neighborhood, a lot of refugees from war-torn uh, Southeast Asian uh, countries, Laos, Vietnam, Cambodia. And, uh, you know, so it was another interesting part in my life of being one of a handful of poor white kids in this predominantly poor Asian uh, area. Um, but, you know, we, we continued, uh, you know, going to church um, intermittently with my grandfather. And uh, she was introduced to the missionaries uh, when I was about 11. And took the discussions. Um, you know, being being a poor family, she I think she saw the social uh, and financial support of the church uh, as being very appealing. I honestly don't know that she really understood uh, the differences between the Latter Day Saint Church versus a Presbyterian Church or a Baptist Church as far as the doctrines or theology was concerned. Uh, I think that she mostly just saw a community you know, people that uh, she could uh, tap into and, and could offer support. Gotcha. When when the missionaries are over teaching your mom, and obviously you're sitting in on the discussions as well, correct? Yes. What was your impression of uh, of the missionaries teaching those? Well, you know, being an 11-year-old kid, they, they didn't seem that young to me. I know that's what a lot of people talk about is how young these these kids are. Uh, but, you know, I... I to you know, to be completely honest with you, it's a little bit fuzzy uh, at this point in my life. I do remember them, um, but I don't remember a lot of exactly what we discussed. I do remember them teaching me that I could pray uh, in any manner that I wanted to, as far as I didn't have to have my hands clasped together in the traditional um, depiction of prayer. I didn't have to be always on my knees; that I could pray 
sitting down, I could pray upside down, I could pray in a car. Um, so I, I, I remember that pretty strongly. Excellent. Um, so your mom takes the discussions and makes the decision to join the church. What kind of comes about from that point? How was your early life in the church? Well, you know, my, my grandfather, uh, again, you know, strong Presbyterian background, I, I, I was pleasantly surprised to see that he really supported us in, uh, in joining the LDS church. Uh, in fact, actually, he was the only family member um, who was there to witness our baptism. Um, and he, I do remember him smiling and thinking that that was a great thing. Uh, we were, we were fully active for probably about three years, uh, in Everett. And I, I remember going to church regularly, uh, being in primary and, uh, learning some of the stories about the Nephites and the Lamanites, um, about Lehi's crossing, things like that. Again, I don't really think that I fully understood, um, how different and what a different claim uh, Mormonism had than any of the other churches that I had attended. But, uh, you know, after about three years, uh, we moved. And we moved uh, from Everett, Washington, out to a small town called Port Orchard, Washington, uh, closer to where my mother's older sister lives. And at that point, my mom just kind of dropped out. And I don't think it had anything to do with, with being offended or... Um, any sort of doctrinal history issues or anything like that. It was it was just because she wasn't the kind of person to just go out and make new friends. Gotcha. Gotcha. You know, you mentioned a little bit about how maybe your mom uh, got baptized, and, and on some extent you getting baptized before you maybe really comprehended what the differences were between the church you had gone to and, and the LDS church. And I think some listeners will find that to be kind of unusual sounding. But kind of just to go along with that, I just talked to a member uh, last week who said that they didn't even know that they were that tithing was a principle they were supposed to follow till after they had gotten baptized. And so maybe just kind of uh, mention that so that going along with what you're saying, that those types of things happen, that the missionaries come out and they teach discussions and, and there's these six lessons and then we get baptized and sometimes some of these principles maybe get lost in the process as well. Yeah, and this was definitely during a time when flip charts were used. Uh, there was a standard script that was used, so it was, it, it was less of a discussion and more of a presentation. Um, so I think, you know, we sat through the presentations. Uh, they probably talked about all these things. They probably talked about the principle of tithing, of following the word of wisdom, of, uh, you know, the, the things that, um, you know, that we were asked to do. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it was one of those things where, again, my mother, I think, saw a potential support in the church, um, through the welfare program that she just kind of went through all of that, uh, knowing that at the end she was going to get a food order. Cause that was really the biggest priority, uh, gotcha. for our family. Gotcha. And so you said you essentially, your, your family went inactive. So what, what happened next that kind of changes that and, and causes things to go a different direction? Mm-hmm. Well, growing up in Port Orchard, I was, uh, you know, more, Mormons were a minority out there. I, pro- I can count on my right hand how many Mormon friends uh, I had, and I can count on probably two fingers how many of them were active. Um, but uh, I had a lot of friends of different uh, religious backgrounds and faiths within um, Christian denominations, and uh, they would invite me out to their churches quite often. Um, so for quite a while, I actually attended a, a Pentecostal youth group on Wednesdays, and then I would go to, uh, you know, a non-denominational 
uh, Christian service on Sundays, and then sometimes go to sacrament meeting afterwards. Was the uh, was the Pentecostal church? If I can just ask, were they pretty mild or were they pretty expressive in the way that they worshipped? They were expressive. It was it was a a holy roller, um, charismatic, speaking in tongues uh, church. Now and it, and it was a youth group. I, I never attended their Sunday services, um, so this was a youth group. And, and teenagers tend to be, well, we're we're dramatic uh, when we're teens, and so you know, so I think that they played it up even more, <laughs> to be honest with you. My uh, wife would say I'm still dramatic. So yeah. <laughs> I get that. Um, so you're visiting all these different churches, and so kind of going around and seeing how some of these different faiths uh, interact and maybe some of the things that they're teaching, um, how did that help you in kind of uh, developing your thoughts on religion? Well, yeah, and I definitely saw, <clears throat> one, one thing that I saw within all these churches is that every single one of them, had a very sincere uh, desire to worship uh, Jesus Christ and to worship God. Um, so I walked away from that, uh, if nothing else, feeling that they they didn't sit around saying, well, we're not really sure if we've got the full truth or not. They were very invested into their uh, belief systems uh, very sincere about it. Um, they've had spiritual experiences and spiritual witnesses which confirmed to them that they were on the right path, um, that they were growing closer to the Lord, that they were saved, um, things like that. Now, I did have one pastor. Uh, he was in a Calvary church, and I think he had um, some pretty strong Calvinist leanings, and he was vehemently anti-Mormon. His, his father was uh, a Mormon convert. And so a good bulk of his preaching was done against uh, the LDS faith, which which was really interesting because this, again, was not a strong area for the LDS church, um, so that he felt so compelled to, to preach against it. And he would carry uh, materials uh, in, his, in his lobby, such as the Godmakers video and things like that, and freely pass them out to people who wanted to learn the truth about Mormonism. Um, so that was an interesting experience. And what, what did you personally take away from that? Well, you know, I wasn't, I, I wasn't really a fan of the approach of outright attack, um, you know, on, on another person's tradition and faith. Particularly because I was, at this point, I was dating, uh, an LDS girl. Um, this was a high school, you know, fling. And her, and she was active, her family was active. And so they would actually take me to sacrament meeting. Uh, on Sundays at this point, my mother was still inactive. I should mention that my mother is fully active now. Um, but they, uh, at this point, they were, um, you know, they would, they would pick me up. So I would attend this, this, uh, non-denominational or this, this Calvinist, uh, bent, uh, service in the mornings at around 10. And then I think they had that year a one o'clock sacrament meeting that they would pick me up for. So I would, I, I ended up going to both. Um, and, you know, the biggest thing I, I, that I recall that really hit me, and it, and it didn't, it compel me enough to, to launch fully back into my, uh, LDS faith, but, uh, it was just one of those differences that has always stuck with me. This was the year that they were going through the Joseph Smith book in elders, in priesthood. And, uh, and it hit, and it hit me that, uh, I really identified with a lot of the things that Joseph Smith was quoted uh in that book um i i do remember sitting in 
uh, elders quorum at that point. Um, I think I was 17, but they allowed me in because I was with her dad. Uh, but I do remember sitting in, in there, um, you know, reading some of the things that Joseph Smith said, saying, you know, that's, that's really, I, I identify with that. That's really neat, um, theology that he has there. But in the same time, you know, I, I had a pastor who was feeding me. Well, when he found out, I told him that, you know, I, I was attending a LDS sacrament meeting and that <laughs> changed our, the dynamics of our, well. changed the dynamics gotcha. of our relationship big time. Now he felt that he was on a mission to save both his father and me. And, uh, I ended up not, uh, I ended up leaving his church. Um, you know, I I never became a member of his church, but I just, I didn't go to his services anymore. Gotcha. So you're, you're somewhat, I guess, attending sporadically with a a young lady that you're dating. You're, you're for the most part inactive. Um, you're in high school. You've attended some other churches, although obviously again, you're, you're also attending an LDS church from time to time. Where do we go from there? Oh, I move over to Seattle, um, to the to the actual uh, city itself, and uh, completely drop out of most church activity. Well, this is kind of a fun thing. I had some friends who were in Christian punk rock bands, and uh, I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but it exists. <laughs> um, but uh, and and there was a record label in Seattle called Tooth and Nail Records that was known for putting out Christian rock and punk music. And so I actually started working for them. Uh, I put on some concerts in Port Orchard at a local teen Christian community center uh, that I was involved with. And I had some friends, um, you know, that are actually in fa- fairly popular bands. There was one called MXPX that did really well in the, in the general market. Um, but, yeah, I became friends with them, and they told me about some openings over at the uh, record label in their uh, mail room. <laughs> and so I, I hopped on the boat, literally packed up my car one day and, uh, moved over there. And I lived in a small, um, three bedroom house with, uh, one bathroom and about 20 guys that were in punk rock bands. Gotcha. It was, so, it, so a congested group of, uh, the, uh yeah, of, of, of less than hygienic Christian rockers. Right. Yeah. Right. But, and it was, it was a fun experience. Excellent. Was, was this something too that that also kind of strengthened your faith to kind of participate with other people who are, I'm guessing, kind of in a similar age group that you're in, and uh, obviously the the type of music isn't like you say what most traditional Christians would see as faith promoting, but obviously if anybody's taking time to listen to some of that music, uh, the message, the lyrics is certainly uh, faithful, uh, and it allows a music that reaches out to that kind of age group. Yeah. Was that something that helped uh, in your faith? Yeah, yeah, and it was, it, it was interesting because most of these, these kids that were in these, uh, Christian punk rock bands grew up in fairly orthodox and strict Christian homes. And so for them, this was also, um, a method of rebelling too. Yeah. And, and, and it I was, can see that, yeah. Yeah, and it was, you know, so yeah, their lyrics were usually pretty pro, uh, faith, although most of them would, would say that they, that they weren't evangelical. Um, in their uh, in their music, most of it was while they kept their lyrics clean and weren't necess- you know they weren't up there slinging around profanities. Uh, they definitely had a lot of existentialist type uh, influences and uh, Nietzschean type influences in their music. They're actually a very intelligent uh, group of, of guys uh, who you know in some respect were 
questioning and countering the faith that they grew up with through their music. Um, there was a lot of talk about struggles and trials and, and questions and things like that. So we actually had some very profound intellectual discussions, but they also, at the same time, weren't afraid to party pretty hard. Uh, so, you know, we, I, I, it was, a, a person who grows up listening to Christian music would probably be a little bit shocked as to how often we would sit around uh, drinking ourselves silly and talking about God. Sure. No, I can understand that. Um, so you're in this, you're helping out in the music industry with, with these Christian rock bands. Um, how does this kind of bring you back around to the church? Well, one of the uh, musicians that I was living with was dating an LDS girl, and her older sister uh, came out to one of the concerts that was being run, and I met her there, uh, and I ended up dating her. And uh, she was uh, fully active at that point. She was a BYU um student uh, that had moved out to the Seattle area. Uh, she actually ended up getting her um, bachelor's at the University of Utah in painting and, and fine arts. So she was an artist and she was a musician herself. And uh, I think saw Seattle as, a, as an artsy musician's town, so she ended up out there. And then uh, ended up actually pulling a whole family um, out there from, from Utah and California. Uh, and yeah, we, you know, we caught eyes, caught conversation. I, you know, that's <laughs> funny story. So we were, after this concert that we attended, uh, there was an after party and she went to that and I was, I was pretty well toasted <laughs> and we were talking and she brings up the fact that she's, uh, that she's LDS and I slur out, so am I. <laughs> and she says, well, I can see that. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know. We we exchanged phone numbers and I dated her uh, soberly after that um, for for a while and we uh, I ended up reactivating uh, in the church so I attended uh, an institute ward uh, with her a college uh, age ward with her and her family and uh, got fully active um, ended up uh, I'd, I'd never progressed past deacon so you know I ended up getting the uh, Melchizedek priesthood at that point. Um, and we were married. We were actually sealed in the Seattle temple eight months later, uh, after we started dating and, uh, ended up in a family ward together. And so, yeah, my, my reactivation was, was definitely through, uh, through dating a gal, which is a pretty common story. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm kind of in the, the same boat, although it's my conversion story rather than, uh, being reactivated. My question here would be this. And I, and I get this sometimes too, was my, I always ask myself, was my interest in the church early on because of the girl I'm dating? And so I would ask you kind of the same thing. When you, when you're going back to church, do you feel like your interest is simply because of her or is there, as you're going back, are you, are you developing the sincere interest in the, in the LDS faith? Well, it was a sincere interest. Uh, there's no question. I, I never, once had the, the thought that I was doing this simply so I could gain her favor. Um, you know, and I never sat through it with my arms folded, you know, just saying, let's just get through this so I can, you know, so I can get on with my relationship, uh, with her. No, it was, it was a sincere quest and journey. Um, I was intellectually stimulated. I was spiritually stimulated. Um, I was fully engaged in it. Uh, I was, 
I was a big fan of a lot of the the books that her father had, and her father is is, is very um, kind of almost apologetically uh, strictly orthodox, and so his bookshelf was filled with things from Lee Grand Richards and from Hugh Nibley and Talmadge, and and so I would spend quite a bit of time uh, going through his books, Parley P. Pratt's biography, um, you know, some of the writings from from Brigham Young, and uh, and I and I really. Uh, found a very, oh, I guess you can say dynamic and open, uh, theology that, uh, that, you know, really spoke to me. And I think that a lot of it had to do with the roots of, you know, the, the on again, off again interaction that I'd had, uh, with the church. But, um, yeah, it, it, it lit a fire in me. Excellent. Um, so you're, you're in your early twenties. You're active in the church again. You're reading books by uh, LDS intellectuals among the leadership. Are there any kind of beginnings of reading some things that you that kind of catch you the wrong way, or are you completely on board at this point? I'm I'm pretty well completely on board. I will say that there was probably a few things that I had read in the Journal of Discourses uh, or the. Um, some of the stuff from Brigham Young, which which would raise questions, such as you know I did come across his Adam God theory uh, pretty early on. I mean I was you know again at this point this is post being sealed in the temple, right. being very active, but yeah and so there was there was questions that would come up and I would ask her father um, to explain what's this all about and he would he would have a uh, an apologetic response to most of these issues that I, that satisfied me at the time. Um, but, you know, mostly reading things like A Marvelous Work and a Wonder, uh, Jesus the Christ, um, some of the other uh, books that Talmadge put out, like uh, The Vitality of Mormonism, which was a fantastic uh, uh, book. And, uh, you know, those, those, those books, I think I was, they were convincing enough uh, for me to uh, overshadow at that point any, any flaws that I might have seen. Gotcha. So what happens between you and this young lady you're dating? Well, we were married for uh, for 10 years, and then it uh, fell apart. <laughs> um, we'd had, uh, I guess, five years after we were married, we'd uh, had a child. And, uh, yeah, about four years after that, we ended up in a divorce. Um, and it was, you know, it was interesting because at this point, um, well, I, you know, I'd, I'd served in a lot of coins. I was, I was in the bishopric. Uh, of uh, Seattle Ward, which which I'd like to talk about that experience uh, do. for a minute. It was really a, a, a very neat experience, and I, and I really treasure it. Uh, the uh, ward that we had was a very diverse and unique uh, inner-urban ward. And, uh, for anybody who's been in an inner-urban ward uh, before, they might recognize that there's usually not a lot of youth Um the youth tends to live out in the suburbs, and in the inner urban, you have well, what we call the newlywed or the nearly dead. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> you have those who have lived in Seattle since the 1940s and 50s and bought homes back when they were cheap, and then you have students who were recently married and attending the University of Washington. A lot of dental students, medical students, um, but it was you know it was a really neat experience because you had this huge cross section of culture we had um I, I i like to refer to it as a ward full of feminists gays and so-called intellectuals <laughs> um, to to quote boyd k packer gotcha. um we had uh 
uh, at least a half a dozen uh, open um, gays attending. Uh, we had a, um, a transgendered uh, individual. Uh, we had um, out-and-out feminists, uh, one of which even had protested uh, the Seattle Temple when it was being constructed for women's rights uh, and women's ordination. Uh, I had one of the daughters of Eugene England in the ward. Uh, on the reverse of that, I also had one of the daughters of Michael McLean. So, <laughs> we had, we, again, it was a big crop. Yeah, different ends of the spectrum. Yeah, we had some of the Benyons, which are well known in the intellectual circles. Uh, you know, it was a very, um, dynamic, uh, ward. I think I've used the dynam- word dynamic a few too many times now, but, um, and the bishop that I served with was an amazingly tolerant and Christ-like individual. Um, I often joke around that the church hand- handbook of instructions uh, just sat on his shelf collecting dust. He kind of just flew by the seat of his pants and went by the spirit, um, which I really appreciated. Uh, I don't think the stake appreciated it nearly as much, but but he had been a bishop for 13 years. That's a long time. That's a long time. He had been called over and over again, and and the reason for it was... His congregation just absolutely loved him, and there were there were many people who came out of inactivity um, and became, you know, mostly active members of the church, regardless of their circumstances, because of his compassion and his love uh, that that he really showed. And, and I remember just having several conversations uh, with him, and he was really a fantastic mentor uh, to me. There was you know one story where a sister was in the hospital. And uh, he called her up and visited her and asked, you know, what he could do uh, to help her. And she sheepishly said, well, I've, I left my pack of cigarettes uh, at home if you could I, pick those up for me. And he he actually went out and bought her a carton of cigarettes and brought it to her. And he said, sister, this is between you and the Lord, not between you and me. Right. That's That's a good story. I mean, so often... We try to deal with people on this letter of the law and realizing or not realizing that these individual choices are, like you say, it's it's between them and the Lord and it's not, you know, the bishop going out and buying her the pack of cigarettes wasn't saying anything about his salvation. It was simply dealing with the level at which she was at. So that, that's a good story. Yeah. Um, kind of going back to this ward that's made up of, as you put it, a very diverse group. Do you do you pick up on this right away, or because this is kind of the first ward you're really active in, do you see this as kind of the normalcy within the church? That's you know that's a great observation, and and I I think uh, I think you hit the nail on the head. This was what I saw as the norm. Growing up around the Seattle area, I was already used to to diversity. Um, so when I heard people make little jabs about Utah Utah culture, I didn't really get it. Um, I, I figured that, you know, that there was just this, I don't know, kind of competition between Utah and the rest of the Mormon world. And right. I, I didn't understand, uh, really what that meant. And this to me was church. This was the Mormon church and the diversity in it to me represented probably the rest of the church as well. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was a shock when, uh, when I left that ward, uh, you know, after I divorced and, ended up in a more traditional suburban family ward with a bishop who was from Utah and was definitely more of a of a you know fan of the church handbook of instruction and 
that was, you know, that was definitely a culture shock for me. Right, as an adjustment. So, kind of going from being in this ward with with all these different uh, directions of life that people are kind of living in, did I'm trying to think offhand how I want to phrase this? Did you did you do you feel like every member of the church would benefit? from being in a ward like that. In other words, if you took every member of the church and said the very six months of your membership in the church you're gonna you're gonna spend in a ward like this, what kind of impact do you think that would have on on the rest of us? Well I think that there's it's very easy to to live with stereotypes and with um, perceived ideas of of what people are and labels that we like to assign to people. And I think that the way to break that down is by getting to know them on a one-on-one individual basis. Um, so yes, I think that it would be a very healthy exercise and maybe there would be a few attitudes changed towards their brothers and sisters who sometimes feel shunned within the, uh, the LDS community. Um, the clearest example that I can see of that is the missionaries who would come out and serve in our ward. And they were, um, oftentimes from Utah, uh, we would get these, these, you know, young men from Farmington or, uh, Lehigh, Utah. And they would come out there to Seattle and the, and the boundaries that, that we had cut right through the predominantly gay neighborhood, um, of Seattle. So while they were out there, uh, tracting up and down the streets, it was common for them to see men walking around holding hands or two women, you know, giving each other a kiss in the street. Um, and that was, you know, you would see eyes as big as saucers with <laughs> these young boys. Um, and, and to me, you know, I, I probably had a bit of, of, uh, perverse fun in watching their culture shock, um, as they would come out because that was just to me how life was. And, uh, I would go out, uh, quite often on splits with the missionaries and I would go out, um, as a bishopric and also with our stake presidency and visit the less active. And a lot of times it, they were less active because they were gay and they didn't feel um, wanted or comfortable in the church. And so it was kind of our job to reassure them that they are indeed our brothers and sisters and that we uh, love them uh, and that we desire them to fellowship with us. Um, so that was, you know, that was kind of, that was part of our mission. Very true. Okay. You know, you talk about the missionaries and kind of being an eye-opening experience. So often we we try to explain to our young men who are going on missions, and I'm sure they do this at the MTC as well, but because I didn't serve a mission, uh, so I don't know firsthand, but to teach these young men that the whole goal is to learn to love God's children, and yet in this this ward that you lived in, these missionaries that are coming in, like you say, straight out of Utah, maybe with a little bit of uh, naiveness, that they're essentially kind of thrown right into practicing not only this ideal, but actually living it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's probably a good um, exercise to go through. Uh, you know, Eugene England wrote one of my favorite essays and it's why the church is as true as the gospel. Yeah. And, and in that, you know, essay, he, he really discusses the idea of church being a school of love and, and that it's, it, you're, you're somewhat compelled uh, to associate and congregate and, and commune with those who you who you might not otherwise choose uh, to commune with, people that you might not feel that you have a lot of commonality with uh, or identify with. Um, but that in itself is the practice of Christianity, and that Christ's 
himself, um, surrounded himself with, you know, with people who the priests and the Pharisees wouldn't go near. And, uh, and I think that that's, that's an experience that our, our missionaries and our, our, you know, transplants from Utah would go through when they would go into our ward is these are people who would be treated as, um, as lepers, as publicans, as, uh, you know, outcasts of society, uh, in, uh, in Christ's day and certainly are to some extent in our day. And so to go out and, and love them and to fellowship with them and commune with them, you know, you learn pretty quickly that their sexuality is really secondary to their personality. And so, you know, when I went out and visited these, these members, it wasn't, it, it no longer became me talking to a gay person. It became me talking to a person. And so our conversations weren't about them being gay. Uh, our conversations were about their childhood and their experiences on their missions and, you know, who they were, where they worked, where they went to school. It, you know, that label of them being gay uh, melted away. Gotcha. Excellent. So you you end up saying that you moved, you've gotten divorced. What kind of happens uh, from that point with your membership in the church? I I go inactive uh, for probably eight months. And, you know, I think it was just one of those instances where my entire world had just turned upside down. Um, you know, we, having been temple married, having been in leadership positions, uh, having been completely fully active and, you know, doing everything that, that we were told to do and to have my uh, <clears throat> marriage crumble um, just was uh, a big shock to the system. And, uh, you know, the last thing that I was interested in was uh, going back as a single post-divorce adult. Um, you know, it's, it's, that's another area that in the church that we could probably improve on is making divorcees feel uh, a little less like social deviants. Um, you know, so it was, uh, I, I didn't really want to be in that environment that was so strongly pro marriage and family at that point. So yeah, I dropped out, um, moved in with a friend of mine who was a non-practicing, uh, Jew from Argentina. I worked with him and, uh, you know, we actually had a great time. Uh, he was very interested in Mormon theology and I was always very interested in Judaism. So we would have fantastic religious discussions, um, while we were living together. And then after about eight months, you know, I, I, I started missing the fellowship, um, of the saints. The gray cloud that was accumulating over my head started really getting me down and I just wanted to be around people who had a positive perspective uh on life and on and on you know on faith um so so i started going back to church in fact the first place that i went was uh the church that i was first baptized in when i was 11 and uh, ironically the bishop still had the same name uh bishop hudson was my bishop when i was baptized and bishop hudson was the bishop when i went and visited uh, it was his nephew that <laughs> was the bishop but so that was kind of fun it was kind of like this this full circle but i do remember sitting in the back of the chapel you know, with my head down, because at this point, I, I didn't feel worthy to take the sacrament. And uh, so when they were passing the sacrament, my head was just down in prayer. And I remember this very distinct feeling that that just struck me to the core. Uh, and it, it was the words that came into my mind of, why do you hide in the shadows from me? Uh, that that shook me. Um, 
you know, if I, if I, I've had very few, um, strong experiences like that in the church. I can't say that I've ever had, uh, a strong epiphany moment or, um, you know, a strong moment where I really felt that God was talking to me directly. And, mm-hmm. the, and, but that was one of them where I really felt, uh, a little chastised, but, uh, you know, but it wasn't, it wasn't all, <laughs> it wasn't all positive, unfortunately, because at this time I was also going through, uh, a faith crisis, which I, I guess we can launch into next. Yeah. I, the way you kind of are, are, are touching on that. And, and I think this happens to way too many members of our church that for one reason or another, they feel unworthy. And so sitting in our, our chapels, whether it's a uh, divorced members, whether it's single adults, even things that are not real issues that cause unworthiness, there's this lack of, I don't know, believing in oneself or thinking that the Savior still holds you in high regard that causes a lot of people to uh, drift away needlessly, I think. As, as a bishop, I'm sure that you see that, uh, fairly regularly. And I, and as a, uh, counselor in the bishopric, I've counseled with those who, who have felt that way. Um, and, you know, we, we set up a pretty high ideal of how you're supposed to live life, what kind of a, a family you're supposed to be. Um, and so yeah, when you fall short of that, you, you do, well, you know, when, when we talk about sin, we talk about it as missing the mark. And we have a pretty, specific and high target uh, in our church to hit. And when we miss that mark, whether it be through a failed marriage or whether it be through some individual choices, um, we do feel that we're in sin. And one of the things you're kind of speaking to, there are so many times where we'll have certain occasions in church, whether it's you know Mother's Day, Father's Day, we'll have a special sacrament meeting on eternal families and those types of things. And being in a leadership position, I'm sure this has gone through my head for sure, and I'm sure it's gone through yours, but we probably all ought to be aware of the different situations that are in our congregations so that we, you know, not that we avoid teaching the church's principles or the true principles that are there, but that we also find ways to reach out to those whose situation may not may not fit in that box that uh, that we've kind of created as a standard. I think we could do a much better job of that. As a community, and I think that that's something that is uh, would be emulating Christ. Um, I, I think Christ was was very sympathetic and empathetic towards situations which were less than ideal. Uh, I agree. Yeah, that's good. That's beautiful. So you're relatively inactive. You come back. You have this experience uh, in sacrament meeting, but you also said there was some negative kind of tied into to you trying to work your way back as well, and that you kind of entered a a faith crisis. What what brought that about? And uh, maybe share some of your feelings from that experience. Well, it started out with uh, with studying really the Great Apostasy, and and at this point, you know, I was rereading the book, The Great Apostasy, um, and I just started deciding that I wanted to research this further rather than just reading the book and accepting it as it was. Um, you know, being outside now of the circle of influence that I was in. Uh, particularly with my, at that point, um, soon-to-be ex-wife's very strong Orthodox family and, as I mentioned, her nearly apologetic father, 
um, being outside of that circle of influence, I now had this, well, this freedom to explore um, my own thoughts on things and my own take on things. And so, you know, my entire world had turned upside down, so I think it's only natural that my uh, view of what is uh, epistemologically true would also um, come into question. So I started studying the great apostasy and going back through um, some different texts that talk about the early formation of Christianity. The big question to me was, just like most people, when did the great apostasy happen? What signs do we see of it? Um, and how did that all come together? Specifically, what's been, been restored when we talk about a restoration? Those are huge questions, <laughs> and unfortunately I was a bit... Um, presumptuous and arrogant and thinking that I could find those answers in, in Christian history <laughs> because what it really, and I do have, you know, s- some different ideas since going through this, but what it, what I came across was the idea that the, that the historical Jesus, um, may not necessarily be what his disciples have written about him. And that shook me to the core. Uh, the formation of the New Testament, um, the Gospels that were written about him that were written decades after these events happened. One, you know, the Gospel of John, possibly even a, a, a good 70 years after these events had happened. This, the seeing of the borrowing of texts from Matt, from the book of Mark, uh, you know, throughout Matthew, throughout Luke, and just the questions that began to emerge about the nature of who this man Jesus was um, was really frightening uh, to me. And the idea that a lot of the New Testament was containing faith-promoting stories um, began to crumble away at my foundation. Gotcha. question here would be, um, I want to kind of get a feel for, maybe give my listeners a feel for where you're getting this information. Is this... Is this just by getting books at the library? Is this by um, researching online? Are you looking? Because people want to know essentially why others run into these kinds of questions yeah. and where they stem from. Yeah, researching online, you know, with with uh, information that's been published by universities, um, by religious scholars, or uh, um, you know, Christian history academics, and then also, um, you know, one of the the books which I think hit me the most was. Uh, Bart Ehrman's Misquoting Jesus. Uh, that um, that book uh, was probably the one that I invested the most time into. Also, the um, the History of God. Um, and I'm, I'm forgetting the the name of that author uh, right now. And uh, and then there was also a, a documentary series that I watched, um, which was uh, put out by PBS, and it was called uh, The First Christians, um, and it was a pretty long series, about seven episodes in that series, and I'd watch it on, on YouTube, and they had a lot of experts in the field of, of archaeology, of sociology, of, of early Christian history, and they really kind of deconstructed um, what can be supported historically and archaeologically versus what is probably a faith-promoting story. Um, you know, a lot of things like authorship issues and... Um, you know, again, borrowed texts and, and, and things like that. Um, like, you know, for example, the letters of 
of the Pauline epistles, uh, you know, we were really only confident that about half of those were actually authored by Paul. Um, the book of Revelations, we're, we're, you know, while we're thinking that there was somebody named John who authored it, we're not exactly sure if it was the same John who was um, John the Beloved and you know, his disciple. And so just a lot of those issues that, you know, really, those are issues that, you know, to be honest with you, a lot of people can work through. Um, but at that point in my life and the circumstances in my life, what it was for me it was a dramatic blow. Um, because what I'd always seen, and, and some of this comes from my, uh, I guess, venturing into other churches, into non-denominational churches who do emphasize the absolute correctness of the Bible and the literalness of the Bible and the infallibility uh, of the Bible, uh, the inerrancy. And so that was the first time in my life I'd heard, you know, through through our Mormon, you know, doctrines and our theology, so long as it's been translated correctly for years. But I had always t- taken that as um, so long as we translated it correctly and we interpreted it correctly. I, I never took that as an actual attack to, uh, attack on the text itself. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. I I can um, sympathize with all the things you're saying right now a whole bunch because I think a lot of these kinds of issues, when they when they first onset, have a lot to do with our um, expectations that we hold of what doctrine is, or what the church is, or what what the Bible is, and how you said we take it in this literal way, or we're, and we're really kind of taught to do so, and yet when we discover these things that don't quite match up, rather than being able to easily say, well, I'll just look at it this way, it really goes against the grain of everything we've we've been raised in the way to see it. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely, and it opens up further questions. Yep. So, and, oh, go ahead. Well, as I was say, that kind of leads me to my next question, which is you start off this whole, and, and don't take offense to this, because what you're saying is the exact same way I would I would kind of talk about this as well, but you talk about how you first started to explore the apostasy, and then all of a sudden you're delving into these other hundred different questions and issues that you, that you encounter, and those who are unfamiliar with faith crisis or unfamiliar with this process would look at people like you and me and say, we're looking for trouble. So what took you from having one question to having a whole bunch of them? And why do those who don't run into faith crisis need to maybe test their assumption that Latter-day Saints are that who who have this problem are essentially looking for a way out. <laughs> yeah, and it definitely wasn't looking for a way out. It was looking for a way in. Uh, right. And I think that that's that's something that needs to be emphasized to to people. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about about that uh, later. But as far as um, as far as what leads from one thing to the next, well, when your foundation gets shaken, it, the 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 natural question, the very next question, is what else is wrong. And what else have I have I put stock into that uh, doesn't hold water? Uh, so for me, you know, I turned from the New Testament over to the Book of Mormon, hoping to to regain that testimony because you know I'd been well socialized at that point that if you want to gain a, a testimony of Christ, you study the Book of Mormon, and uh, that's something I'd done for years, reading the Book of Mormon with with my wife. Um, 
but never reading it, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, never investigating it. Um, so, and, and, and I, so my intention of going through the Book of Mormon was to, f- to find Christ, um, as another witness of him. Um, unfortunately, it, it didn't, uh, it was kind of a disaster. Uh, the things which I had never really picked up on in the Book of Mormon before really started becoming glaringly obvious to me. And these are the issues that, uh, you know, a lot of, um, disaffected members talk about, uh, with the Book of Mormon, uh, the anachronisms, uh, that you find in it out of, out of context items. You know, at this point I had read, um, the book Guns, Germs, and Steel, um, which, which is a, a fantastic book. Uh, but it, you know, and it was about the, uh, uh colonization and, and, uh, from Europe, uh, throughout the world. And, you know, it makes you pretty ashamed to be a European, but. Sure, yeah. But at the same time, it also put into my mind a historical context of Latin America. And, uh, you know, it was pretty clear, uh, at least through this reading that, uh, there were no pre-Columbian horses, that steel didn't exist in Latin America, that a lot of the things which uh, are discussed and some of the things which aren't discussed are anachronistic to the Book of Mormon, um, that the uh, uh, passages that were taken from uh, the Bible, of course, at this point, I had already been questioning the Bible and its authorship, and so to see those passages appear um, in the Book of Mormon was unsettling uh, to me, particularly you know, after going through um, Bart Ehrman's book and seeing some texts which were, you know, uh, according to biblical scholars, added later, um, appended, uh, or amended, rather, um, some of the uh, stuff that uh, we're not quite sure uh, where it came from, appears in the Book of Mormon. Uh, the um, Isaiah passages that are quoted and having, you know, biblical scholars saying that there was more than one author to Isaiah and that this one would have obviously appeared after the time that Lehi had already left uh, Jerusalem. So, you know, and, and you turn to the Internet for answers and you come across even further information, mormonthink.com. Uh, you know, I, I can't even tell you how many times I've heard disaffected members say that mormonthink.com became their catalyst for really unraveling everything. Uh, right. Yeah, And there's something to be said, too, for the ability of the Internet to essentially take every problem that would have taken you, you know, a lifetime to come across, to essentially give it to you an hour right on your lap. Yeah. And, and the trouble that that poses for those who have a very literal black and white way of seeing things, and then all of a sudden to not just have one little thing here to work through this week and another thing maybe six months from now, but to have, you know, 200 of them sitting there ready to, to figure out and to learn things as you're trying to solve one problem to learn of another 100 problems that exist. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think the overwhelming amount of information. Yesterday I watched a video, um, on YouTube and it was, it was silly, but I, I just got too curious. And it was an end, uh, end of times prediction. And of course going, you know, into this whole, uh, December 21st end of the mind calendar thing. And they had taken several news clips over the course of about 15 minutes, um, and shown how these end-time biblical prophecies were all coming to pass. And, you know, it was a lot of things about earthquakes and wars and, and you know, escalating, um, you know, things and, and having uh, birds dropping out of the sky and 
dolphins and whales literally beaching themselves and, uh, you know, using these all as support for their, for their argument. And, and when you condense that much information down to a 15 minute segment, uh, it really convinces you that we are in very dramatic times and that these are unusually dramatic times. If you were to spread that out over the time period that it really happened in, then you could probably pick apart each of those instances and explain in some way why they're happening that way. And it wouldn't necessarily draw you to this world is collapsing conclusion. Um, and I think that that's what happens when we come across a very condensed and rich site, um, you know, online that, uh, that really packs together all of the problems of, of Mormonism and Mormon history is that taken together as a whole, it's so overwhelming that anybody who doesn't walk away from that feeling, well, this thing has to be a complete scam, uh, because of all of this overwhelming evidence, um, I, I think it would take a rather rare individual to not walk away from it with that impression. Right. No, that's, that's a good point. And the one thing I, I hope at some point they tackle within, uh, within Mormonism is to kind of do the opposite, which is to throw up all of the, um, evidence or different things that have occurred that at least lead to a positive way of seeing the LDS faith as true. And so I know FAIR, for instance, puts a lot of the answers to the questions on their, on their site. But it doesn't seem like there's anybody out there that does the opposite of Mormon think, which is to essentially take all the evidence and put it on one website without dealing with the issues at all. And I think if we did that, we'd come to kind of find out that whenever any kind of evidence is lumped on us, which I think you used a beautiful analogy, we talked about this End Times documentary you watched, how whenever we throw a whole lump of evidence on somebody at once, it really doesn't give them a chance to even filter through what's on the other side that leads to a different conclusion. Does that make sense? It does. It's it's just far too overwhelming. And you know, you can editing has so much to do with everything. And you can you can edit um, you know, several different clips of the United States president talking and make it absolutely seem like he's calling for jihad. Right. You know, so it's you you have to be careful about the editing on things. You have to be careful about the condensing of material. Um, the leaving out of the complete story. And this, I'm going to argue this goes on both sides. Uh, sure. Because Absolutely. I believe that apologists are just as guilty of editing, filtering through, presenting one side of the story, which is their side of the story, starting with the conclusion in mind, just as much as those who are attacking the history of the church. They start with the conclusion in mind. So this is where um, I dive into history. And, uh, you know, we'll talk about that a little bit later, but I really prefer to take the objective approach and just what does the record bear? Not, you know, how do we interpret this or how do we view this, but just this is, this is the documented, uh, uh, record that we have. This is the primary source and the original information that we have. Um, and I think that that's, where we need to focus and be more open on. And it's not, it's not about trying to defend or attack. It's only about, um, making the information accessible. Um, and you know, and, and like I said, late, later on, when we get to that point in our conversation, 
I, I'm more than happy to talk about some of the, the things that, that, uh, either I'm involved in or things that I'm, that I see coming, um, which will hopefully help. Gotcha. And that's a good point. And I think, you know, for the listeners kind of taking away maybe from this segment is that it's very, we sometimes think that if someone presents 10 facts, that whatever conclusion, you know, is made from those 10 facts, that's the only conclusion you can come to. And, and maybe to at least leave room that when we, when we encounter history, which is so up in the air anyway, because it's based on what somebody's perception of what occurred, and then taking those things and taking the supposed facts from history, that there are opportunities to draw different conclusions and that we're not always just led down one path. Yeah. And so, it's true. And, and yeah, and so kind of maybe to kind of work through this to the next part, you talk about how you dealt with the Book of Mormon and dealt with doctrinal issues. Did you also run into issues with Mormon history? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, everything is a launching pad for something bigger, right? So, uh, you know, looking at the Book of Mormon, um, and then, and also, you know, I'll throw in the Old Testament as well. Um, you, you begin looking at a lot of these things as being allegorical, as being, um, you know, Bronze Age myths, which are passed down. Uh, you start questioning things like a global flood, like a literal Adam and Eve versus an evolutionary uh, model. Um, and, and of course, because of how we've been, uh, socialized, uh, to, to think, these things are always going to be at odds with each other. Um, or often, I should say, not always, but they're often at odds with each other. Uh, it's an either or, black or white, this or that scenario. And that's been something that has been promoted from, you know, some of the brethren, such as Bruce R. McConkie in the past, Joseph Building Smith. They have these very strict, uh, views. I, you know, I, I listened to your interview with John Dillon, and you certainly had that. Um, at one point in your life, too. Um, yeah, that's very true. We, uh, I don't know how familiar you are with Fowler Stages of Faith. Oh, yeah. And I, I know there's lots of other different um, uh, behavioral philosophies on how faith develops, but using Fowler's kind of as an example, and, and I relate to this one really well, because I can see in each stage how I got there and, and what was what was problematic to keeping me there and what caused me to go into the next stage, but... In Fowler's Stages of Faith, stage three is looked at as this very literal uh, view of black and white. It's also where everything we hold to be true is based on an outside authority rather than being intrinsic and being something that we've pondered and thought through ourselves. And so a lot of people don't realize this, but most individuals get to stage three, and then most individuals stay there. And so some of these problems we see within the church, and we can talk about this later on too, but some of the problems we see within the church seem to come from even within the church, whether it be somebody in the curriculum department or whatnot, that they may, we have to cut them some slack because maybe they see things in a very literal way as well. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's a big awakening part is realizing how much of our own personal, uh, biases and, uh, environment that we're surrounded in, the time and the culture that we're raised in, how much of that influences, uh, you know, what we what we put out and and that is going to hold true through through every facet and department of the church um right. you know but getting back to the mormon history issues yeah i mean it's 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 very unsettling when you discover that the uh uh the historical claims of the church um are far more nuanced and seemingly deviant than 
what you're taught in Sunday school. Um, and, you know, it's, it's very easy, I think, for us, uh, who, who experience this faith crisis to, to sort of shake our fists at the church and say, why didn't you tell me that Joseph Smith used seer stones and buried his, his head face into a hat rather than depicting him as sitting across the table from Oliver Cowdery, literally right. translating the golden plates? Yep. Why didn't you tell me that Joseph Smith had more wives than Emma. Why didn't you tell me these things? You know, maybe if you would have told me these things, then I wouldn't have, have, uh, fallen away. You know, we, we blame, um, the, the church for that. You know, and, and I certainly did. I certainly, um, was at a stage at that point where it was the church is, is being deceitful, um, is withholding information that they're aware of purposefully is lying to the members, uh, more than likely doing this because they fear the church collapsing and they have a tremendous investment into this financially as well as, as, as culturally. Um, you know, so you begin looking for conspiracy, you begin looking for, uh, ways that the church is manipulating and controlling. The word cult starts creeping out in your dialogue. Um, you know, so it's a very, well, it's, yeah, it's a very unhealthy place to be, uh, yeah. at that point. And, 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 you know, once we talk about the shelf, uh, collapsing quite often um, in the disaffected community and, and it seems like a domino effect that once one thing falls, the rest just really sort of collapses. Another analogy that we use is a house of cards. Uh, once one is removed, the rest of it just kind of collapses down. And, and oftentimes, it happens violently, and it happens quickly um, with with people um, within a matter of weeks or a month. This isn't something that slowly percolates for a lot of people. Some people it does, but the majority of people it doesn't slowly percolate over, you know, six years of of finding bits and pieces out, uh, which you know, as as we mentioned, might have been more handleable or easily more easily digestible um but when it when it happens it happens big and it's overwhelming and it's this giant massive elephant that just crushes you um and so that's that's what i find more often than not once one thing goes the rest of it just collapses and so now you're you're questioning whether or not god exists you're questioning whether or not, like I said, Adam and Eve was a literal story. And if that wasn't a literal story, then what's the atonement based on? And, you know, all of these things just become a, a whirlwind. And so, yeah, with Joseph Smith, you've got, you know, the translation issues, as I mentioned with the Book of Mormon. You have the, you know, the fact that he practiced polygamy and that we don't discuss it in the church. And then you have, further than that, how he practiced polygamy, which seems... You know, in, in the way that we would view it as a deviant manner. Um, we look at the, uh, the different, uh, the evolution of the story, the first vision story and, and how it's easy to see that as, uh, something which rather than confirming, uh, each other in different aspects and towards different audiences, it's easy when you're in a disaffected, uh, mindset to look at that as a developing story and as something that as he went along, he added more detail, which supported his theology at that time. Um, it's easy to look at the book of Abraham. I mean, the book of Abraham is one that collapses very quickly for a lot of people, uh, when they discover that the uh, Egyptian papyri text 
um, you know, it was a standard funerary document and wasn't, uh, at least the piece that we have of it, uh, was a standard funerary text and, and not a story as Abraham. Um, that's one of the things that I find commonly within the disaffected community that was a, a rug being pulled out from under their feet. Yeah, very true. So you've encountered kind of some doctrine theology issues. You've encountered some historical issues that, like you say, caused the House of Cards to come crashing down. Were there any outside uh, challenges in your life at this time or other things that were going on that kind of contributed to this as well? Well, me still at this point desiring to go back to church because it was a, uh, a place that felt um, good and it was uh, people that I wanted to be around. Um, but yet sitting there through, because uh, I was still at this point attending sacrament meeting, I was meeting with my bishop going through a repentance process. And uh, I never opened up with my bishop about the doubts and questions that I was going through. Um, I pretty much towed the line when he would uh, ask me about my faith and where I was in the process of, of coming back into uh, full fellowship uh, of the church. I, I you know, will, will admit that at that point I didn't... Uh, didn't know where to begin, uh, didn't believe that he had any answers for me, so I uh, gave him the answers that I knew he was looking for uh, more than anything. Question for you. Would, were you a, was, there, was there any fear on your part in, because you had all this information, that you worried that maybe by sharing with others that you'd, you'd cause these same problems for them? You know, I, I, I certainly know people who that's a big concern from them. For, for me, I don't, I don't know that I've ever really thought about it that way. I never thought about whether or not I would damage somebody else's faith in this. And maybe that's part of a selfish nature, I don't know. But I but I felt more that um, I didn't want to get into an argument uh, with them, for my sanity, more than anything else. And I, I didn't... Uh, again, I just... I knew... Well, it's hard to say I knew, but I felt that they didn't read the same things that I've read. So how could they possibly sure. converse with me at a level? Um, you know, they would be more than likely touting the standard lines and that I'd been taught for years. And most bishops that I, that I know, uh, when they encounter this, this kind of faith crisis, they really don't have the resources available to manage it. Uh, you know, perhaps unless somebody comes from a scholarly academic background or um, has been through their own personal faith crisis and has worked through it, maybe then they have a little bit more empathy. But by and large, the typical kind of grow-up faithful in the church, Utah Mormon, you know, served a faithful mission, uh, and their life has been pretty well on track, and now they're serving as a bishop, they don't have a lot of tools available at their disposal. It's not like the church publishes information to train the bishops on how to deal with a faith crisis. There aren't books and pamphlets that the church supplies to a bishop. Um, you know, most bishops that I know, uh, if you start talking about these issues, are going to give you, um, you know, books that are uh, like a marvelous work and a wonder. Um, which, to be honest with you, I think makes a lot of people feel even more sinful right. than it does anything else. No, that's a, that's a good point. And I think, I hope, that I shouldn't say I think, but I hope that, you know, in the next 10 years or 15 years, that because the Internet has kind of forced this 
this epidemic of too much information too quickly that the church will have some resources that better tackle those things. So kind of looking forward to, to seeing what happens there. But um, So you've got these kind of challenges in your testimony. Are there, again, are there any yeah. kind of personal challenges you're encountering? Well, I started dating another LDS girl. Um, actually found her on, uh, on, on one of the LDS single websites. Excellent. Yeah, so, so prior, so prior to this, I'd made some non-members because I thought, you know, while I was inactive, I thought, well, I, I think I'm probably just going to venture away. And, and, and because of my background of having attended a lot of different churches and traditions, you know, I'd, I'd always maintained a bit of a universalist perspective on, on, uh, on, on Christianity. I'd, even, even in my most devout days and my most orthodox days of serving in a bishopric, I still, um, never really thought negatively about other churches and their journey towards towards Christ. You know, even if I felt that we were the one that the only church that had the the, the proper ordinances, I still felt that uh, that um, on a broad scale, uh, Christians were just fine. And so, and I still hold that. Um, so I thought, well, maybe I'll attend a different church. You know, I've always been particular to the Catholic churches. I always I, I love the. Catholic rituals and the architecture and, and it just it speaks to me. Um, so you know, I started dating a Catholic girl for a little bit and that didn't go anywhere. And, uh, dated you know an atheist and that didn't go anywhere. And, and so I I said, well, I better stick within my own traditions. Um, so I uh, yeah, I went on to I, I don't even remember which website it was LDS Planet I think, and I uh, found this uh, very lovely uh, young lady who was also post-divorce. And had a couple of children that were um, similar to my son's age. Uh, she lived, uh, you know, within a, a short drive of where I was living. And I contacted her, and, and we um, we clicked. It was a it was a fantastic chemistry. Um, so she was uh, struggling to come out of inactivity uh, at that time, and, and that wasn't a faith issue with her as much as it was coming from a bad marriage and a husband who was not supportive of church activity. Um, in fact, just the opposite. He was very um, opposed to, to her, her activity in the church. But she was raised in a faithful uh, Latter-day Saint home. And you know, so she had always desired to be married in the temple and to have the kind of life that, that, uh, you know, that her parents would be proud of. And uh, it didn't come together <laughs> that way. So she... You know, she had enough strength to leave that marriage and with her two children, be a single mom, and uh, wanted to, uh, to to get active in the church, but she didn't really feel uh, worthy of, at that point, worthy of, of, of God's forgiveness and, and God's love. And so it was a, I'm working with her, um, you know, a lot of late night telephone conversations about, uh, about her eternal nature and about her um, being a valued and treasured daughter of God and how Christ has been is waiting with open arms to receive her not rejecting her at all um, and that he knows exactly who she is and where she's at and he's willing to accept her and so you know I'm, I'm doing this all at the same time that I'm completely questioning my own faith and my own um, Belief in God and in Christ's atonement and in His love, and you know, so it was a, it was an interesting paradox. Gotcha. Uh, just so going uh, dating this uh, this this uh, lady and things going well. Um, you guys, I think you mentioned you remarried her. Yeah. Or I mean, got remarried to her, and 
at this point, um, you said there was kind of a, a worry on her part of wanting to have this ideal uh, Latter-day Saint uh, family. Does So kind of where does it go from there? Yeah, well, I, I knew by marrying her that we would that we would eventually need to be sealed. Now, I was, at this point, still sealed. Oh, I still am, actually, um, sealed to my ex-wife. And so there's a process to go through. You don't just go walking into the temple. Uh, right. You have to apply for um, permission to, to be sealed to another person and or for a man to be sealed to another woman. I should specify that. Um, so we had a process worked through. So we got married civilly uh, through our bishop first and then... Uh, you know, pretty shortly after that began the process. Uh, and because she had never gone through temple prep, she had not been an endowed member. Um, so she had some, some work to go through as well before we could go to the temple and be married. We were, we, we did end up getting sealed in the temple about a year and a half later. Um, gotcha. And you're doing all this while you're still kind of yeah. struggling figuring out your own, um, your own faith. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in fact, I'd have to say that at this point I was pretty cynical. Uh, over, um, the claims of the church. And, uh, I was, um, I was probably of the mindset that this was all a creation of man. Um, but I was, uh, not about to break my promise to, uh, to my wife. And that, and it seems like you're also still finding a lot of value in the, the dynamics of, uh, just the, of what a ward is. And yeah. The encouragement it brings and the ability it is to have others around you who kind of share in the journey. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, despite the, the, the bishop that I had who was, you know, perhaps a bit more orthodox than what I was used to, um, the community and the fellowship of the saints is something that I've always, uh, you know, enjoyed outside of the few months where I didn't really want to be around that. Uh, right. but it was, yeah, I mean, I, I love being around positive, happy people, and, and the church offered that. I love being involved in things. So, you know, at this point, I don't, I don't know what callings, I remember what callings I was serving, but I think they're mostly clerk-type positions, membership clerk, things like that. So they're fairly background um, positions. Um, but, yeah, as I'm struggling through all these uh, these questions, researching more, investigating more, and, and it seems like the, the further that I go, the more questions continue to open up. And it and it gets to the point where it seems like nothing is as we present it to be. And, right. and, and you know, and again, as, as I get back into school, we can talk about that more. But um, that was, it just seemed like at every turn that I took, the story was different. That concludes the first part of my interview with Brian Whitney. I hope you'll tune in for the second episode so that you might see the conclusion of it and to see the rest of his faith journey. Thank you so much for joining in today for Mormon Discussion Podcast. Hope that you uh, have a great day. May the Lord warm your shoulders, and God bless.
Seal it, seal it for 